IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode, we review the new album by Alex G and the current Pavement Reunion Tour, and we look ahead to upcoming alt-rock LPs by Smashing Pumpkins and Mariah Carey. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He will be teaching a course next semester at NYU on the meta-narratives of Jimmy World's Clarity, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Just so we're perfectly clear, if there are any administrators at NYU listening to this show, I will absolutely teach this course. It doesn't have to be next semester. You know, maybe we talk about it in 2024. But yeah, I mean, when we when we go into like what we're actually referring to here, I, I cannot hide my jealousy over somebody who gets to like talk at a bunch of college uh a bunch of college students about their favorite albums. I mean, I do that shit for free every single day. Well, let's let's give the background here. There was a story this week that NYU, I guess next semester, will be offering a course on Lana Del Rey. And it'll be diving into her music as well as her place and culture. Um, I know NYU, they had a similar course on Taylor Swift recently. I... I don't know if they've done other courses on on pop stars, but you know this story has gotten some attention, uh, and it's coming from all over the spectrum. Obviously, you have the people out there who are upset about the proposal to forgive college loans, <laughs> and they see stories like this, and it makes their heads explode because. And you looked this up, like NYU tuition. For one semester is, what, like $30,000 or something? It is about $31,000 a semester, and that does that plus fees, and that doesn't include housing, which, by the way, uh, <laughs> don't let the name fool you, NYU is in New York City, specifically Manhattan. So. Oh, my God. So we're talking, I mean, it could be twice then, $30,000. If, if we're factoring in lodging, that could be another thirty k depending on where you live. Yes. I mean, or definitely considerable amount of money. And I'm going to do another shout out to my college hometown, Eau Claire. I think I paid like $150 rent when I lived <laughs> there because I was living like with four or five other people. Um, regarding this Lana Del Rey thing, I'm of two minds on this. I'm curious to hear what you have to say too, but I, I'm of two minds. On one hand, there's this thing going on and I see it in music criticism, and this is true in media in general, that it seems like more and more the people who who get in the door are people who go to very prestigious schools. And, you know, we talk about college loan relief, and I think that's great. But I, th- I would really like to see in the business community an effort to de-emphasize college as a requirement for entry, especially in fields where... You don't really receive training in college to do what you have to do. It's not like becoming a doctor or a lawyer. A lot of fields you have to have real-world experience in order to do it. And I I just want to say that I think music criticism should lead the way on this. This should be the first business that says (laughs) you do not need a college degree to do this job. And I know at NYU, I know that there's courses there on music writing. You know, they've and that's been true for a while. And 
look, God bless. If you want to go to NYU and take a music writing class, that, that's fine. But that should not be a requirement to do this job. I'm going to sound like goodwill hunting here, but it's true. If if you want to be a music writer, all you need, I guess at this point, is an internet connection and a library card. You know, you got to listen to music and you have to read a lot. You don't need to go to college. If you want to learn about Lana Del Rey, you don't need to pay $30,000 a semester to do that. On the other hand, speaking to your point earlier, if someone wants to pay me to teach a course called The Dialectics of a Long December at NYU, I would take that in a heartbeat. That sounds like a blast. Like, I would love to do that. Uh, so, yeah, I, on one hand, I feel like, oh, too much emphasis on college in our culture. We're, we're, we're forcing people to go into debt in order to write record reviews. That seems crazy to me. But on the other hand, give me that NYU money to break down Adam Duritz's 1996 alt-rock classic along December. <laughs> I, I would take that in a heartbeat. Yeah, I mean, I'm of two minds for it as well because, you know, anytime we can get a shot at, like, you know, New York City or people who take, like, this academic bent to Lana Del Rey or Taylor Swift, which, by the way, I think it's worth pointing out that the Lana Del Rey class is in NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, whereas the Taylor Swift class is in NYU's Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music. So two completely different schools within NYU teaching these classes. Um I mean, look, I was a music major in college. Like, I was already there, and, like, I had just taken so many music courses, I figured I'd make it my major. It was not the reason I went to where I went. But, like, I mean, are these classes, like, really any less serious than... I mean, I remember I had a 20th century music class where, like, our teacher made us dance the bus stop while listening to Mary J. Blige. (laughs) Are you serious? Is is that for real? Uh, that is extremely real. Also, there was one day where I, I this guy also taught like piano. We had to take like music theory courses. There was like one day where he just basically said, "Dog, I'm hungover," and like we listened to Yola Tango's "You Can Have It All." Uh, I mean, so the again, I think that not that we're saying, oh yeah, you need to like go to college to like learn straight up STEM courses. Like most college courses are complete bullshit. And once you're there, you might as well have fun with it. And like, like honestly, like I feel like these are the type of courses that actually do prepare you for a uh, lifetime in music journalism, you know, just trying to get academic about the most granular Lana Del Rey stuff. This is way more useful to you now than like, learning the mechanics of sentence structure. Yeah, I just feel like, I mean, my, my, my biggest pet peeve with music writing is academic language that just pervades record reviews now. I want to see less of that. And yeah. maybe you ought to be working at a convenience store when you're 19 and smoking weed and listening to, like, music on headphones. Like, that might be, to me, that's better training to be a music critic than going to an absurdly expensive school and having college professors over intellectualized pop music. I mean, I don't know. This, this is just one of my biases. I, I, you know, when you look at academia, uh, analyzing pop music, I just feel like it goes against the spirit of what this is. And you, you, you end up like just taking the soul out of this stuff when it gets a little too chin strokey. So I don't know. So this is definitely, one of my, I guess, ingrained biases that I just have to deal with. 
I feel like we always hear about the announcement of these courses and there's like never any follow-up as to what this course actually entailed. Like if you're, I, I imagine we have somebody in our audience who goes to NYU or is going to NYU, like, please give us the reportage of what this class is actually like, what your grade was. Like, can, I just want to see someone who gets a C in this course. Like what <laughs> happened there? Like if we, we, we got to have like the George Costanza, like people who got like a C in that uh, course, just to let us know, like what it takes to like, just not cut the mustard in the dialectics of Lana Del Rey. Yeah, like what I wonder, like what would be the take in the Lana Del Rey class that would you know get you a C? Like, are you are you gonna argue that like Ultra Violence is her best album instead of Norman Fucking Rockwell? Like, would that be the thing that would upset the professor and like get out the red pen? I guess do professors have red pens anymore? I, I don't, you probably just submit everything electronically. I don't know, but anyway, yeah. NYU students, please write in. Give us some on-the-ground reporting here at IndyCast. If you're an IndyCast intern, that is the real-world experience that you need <laughs> to break into this business. Uh, let's get to our mailbag segment. Thank you all for writing in. It's always great to hear from our listeners. You can hit us up at IndyCastMailbag at gmail.com. Uh, Ian, you want to read this uh, email? I do. Hey, guys. First time, long time. So, Anthony... I want to just say that he spells it Fontano with an A. He spells it wrong, which is kind of funny. But So Anthony Fontano, of course you know who we're talking about, a YouTube music critic, recently got into a DM beef with Drake. What are your thoughts on how Anthony handled it, and have you guys ever gotten in beefs with artists you've covered? Also, I have something for the suggestion box. I love the mailbag segment, but calling it mailbag is boring. Give the segment a better name. Maybe something like first time, long time, or in the mailbag over the sea. I don't uh, know. You guys can do better than mailbag. Joe from Brooklyn. Oh, man. Taking some heat for the name. Well, I feel like there's a convention in podcasting that you have to call it the mailbag when you get letters from people. And I think we're just following that. I, I I like the idea of making it a little more indie friendly. You know, he made the Neutral Milk Hotel joke. Do we call it snail mailbag? Hmm. That'd be another one. But that implies that people are actually writing us letters yeah. longhand and you know and sending them uh you know via the post office. So I don't know. I, we're probably gonna keep the name, right? Or do you want do you want to change the name, Ian? Uh I don't quote me on this, but I, I would say that like mailbag, like it's just gonna be I don't know, kind of similar to how Led Zeppelin named all their albums, like self-titled. We're just going to stick with the classics. We are staying true to the roots. Yeah, well, we could call it Houses of the Holy if you want to go with the Led Zeppelin analogy. That's the first non-self-titled out In through the outbox? I don't know. Yeah, it's <laughs> a good one. Out through the <laughs> inbox? It's not, wow, this is magic. You are, wit you are witnessing like something akin to Trey Anastasio making magic on the MSG stage. Yeah, this is like that scene in Get Back where Paul McCartney writes uh, Get Back on camera. You know, this is similar to that except way less consequential. Um, let's get to this Anthony Fantano story. And I'm just going to give a little background here for those who don't know. This story, I guess, broke last week. It actually broke, was it the morning that we recorded last yeah. week? So we weren't able to get to it last week. But uh, actually, it was the day after. Because according to Variety, I'm going to read from the Variety story about this. <laughs> Rap superstar Drake is feuding with the internet's busiest music nerd, YouTube music critic Anthony Fantano. On Thursday night, this is last Thursday, 
Drake leaked his own direct messages to Fantano on his Instagram story, which read, Your existence is a light one, and the one is because you are alive. <laughs> a reference to Fantano's tradition of reviewing albums on a scale from one to ten, Drake continued, and because you somehow wifed a black girl. I'm feeling a light to decent one on your existence. That's a little below the belt there, Drake. <laughs> wow. Uh, while Fantano scored Drake's latest al- album, Honestly Nevermind, an official not good out of 10 back in June. I love the not good score. It <laughs> appears the artist's DMs were unprovoked as there are no prior messages between the two. So basically, Fantano, I think he has like a history of panning Drake albums. And of course, Fantano, he is the most... Uh, popular music critic certainly on the on the internet i think he has close to a million followers at this point on twitter i'm sure his follower count blew up after (laughs) this drake story uh so yes but drake lashes out at him in the dms i think fantano recorded a video where he responded to this yeah and he might have called him a bitch or something like that i mean he got a little nasty and i could see why I mean, Fantano, Fantano this, this, this speaks to his prominence. And this is like a terrible story, but like his divorce papers were leaked online yeah. because there were people out there who didn't like his review of like some rap record. I, I, I don't remember which record yeah, it was. Yeah, I think it was like J.I.D. perhaps. Like it was one of those like uh, it was it was one of those rappers who like is super duper lyrical and like if you diss him then like you're like oh man you don't appreciate real hip-hop son i so so jid sounds about right but yeah it was definitely the result of it like it's like cause and effect like he made he he gave a bad review to a specific rack record and then on reddit uh they leaked uh his divorce papers like it's a very clear a leads to b not like oh that just so happened around the same time and drake apparently is on reddit and he's reading (laughs) anthony fantano's divorce papers it's it's pretty ugly i have to say when i saw this story that I was actually proud of Anthony Fantano. I don't I don't know him that well. We've interacted a few times over the DMs, and those DMs have not been leaked. Uh, <laughs> but they were friendly, and I I, I told him you know uh, at one point I was like, hey, I I respect what you do. I mean, you have a huge audience. You know, you're you're doing your own thing, and I think if you're you know we were talking before about you know breaking into music writing. If you want to be a music critic, even if you don't like Anthony Fantano. You know, you don't. You think he has bad taste or whatever. You'd be insane not to study him and and try to learn something from what he's done. Just how he's built an audience, uh, pretty much on his own. Uh, so I respect him a lot for that. Uh, even though like his style of criticism, it's not really something I'm into. Like he he's basically just like a straightforward. I'm going to tell you what this sounds like, and then I'm going to tell you whether I like it. And he doesn't really do any of the like big picture subtextual things that print critics like me like to do uh you know just describing what a record sounds like is usually the most boring part of a review for me but clearly there's a huge audience for what he does i think he's really good on camera he obviously is able to connect with a lot of people uh so i I think he he's really good at what he does and he inspires like a lot of negativity like in the music critic community i mean have you noticed this i feel like there's like a lot of sour grapes toward this guy (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I go back and forth. Like, so, like you were saying, like, sometimes, you know, it's kind of frustrating that uh, just basically saying what the record sounds like, putting a score on it, um, you know, is the path forward as opposed to what we, what I think we try to do, which is find like kind of a happy medium between like the dialectics of Taylor Swift, NYU, School of Academia, and straight up like, this sounds like shoegaze, or this, <laughs> like basically judging albums on how much they sound like death grips. By the way, every single day on Facebook, I get a suggested, um, there's a suggested page, like the same picture of Anthony Fantano at a Death Grips concert. <laughs> like that's all the that's all the group does. It posts the same picture, and it's done that for I think 1,700 consecutive days. But you know, I respect what he does because um, he isn't really beholden to any type of publication, or he's really only beholden to himself. And he creates this like gravitational pull that is. Uh, kind of unmatched in the music critic community, you know, like his say really matters to a lot of people. Um, and I think that there is a bit of frustration, you know, particularly amongst music critics that like his style of criticism and his audience like actually moves the needle in a way that, you know, perhaps Rolling Stone or Spin or Pitchfork might have uh, in an earlier time. Yeah, I mean... I just don't think you should compare yourself to what he does if you are a music writer. You know, he's his own thing. YouTube critics in general are more popular than most print critics. And it's not just Fantano. I mean, there's, and we've talked about this on the show before, but you get into like your Rick Beatos, people like that, uh, you know, who most print critics might not even know who that is, but he I has, don't know who that is. He's like this guy, he's like a looks like he's like in his fifties or sixties who does these videos like where he'll break down various rock songs from a musical perspective. Oh. And you know, his videos will get half a million hits or even like a million hits and he's got a lot of followers. You know, that's not, I mean, it's it's a different kind of thing. And when you're on camera, you connect with people in a different kind of way. If you're just a byline or even if you're just doing a podcast. Uh, getting to the other part of Joe's question where he was asking about our own beefs. I don't know if we want to rehash that. Oh. Certainly nothing on the scale of uh, Drake. I mean, my biggest feud was non-musical Michael Che taking shots at me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> accusing me of uh, molesting dogs and all that stuff. And I won't go deeper into that. Just Google me and dogs and Michael Che. You'll, you, you can read about that story. But um, otherwise, in terms of music, it's like, well, the guy from DuckTales got mad at me <laughs> once. I think Will Toledo took a shot at me once. Probably. On yeah. Uh, that, that sounds about right. I've known people who have been in his crosshairs. Yeah. But I think other than that, I haven't, certainly not Drake. And again, Fantano, hats off. Because I'm sure that was weird for him but it's also like amazing for him i mean he he comes out ahead in that like when you are getting trolled by drake i think that's like a huge compliment at yeah. the end of the day yeah i always wonder what like people of like drake level celebrity do with their day you know what i mean like and i i it just fascinates me to think of him a like watching the needle drop which you know what it's like the if he is the most popular music critic on the internet yeah that's possible but like just drake taking the time to 
you know, write that DM. Like, all and look, this is a guy who probably has to make people in his circle sign NDAs. Like, come on, you know this is going to get leaked, dude. Um, I don't know. Maybe we're going to find out this was, like, some sort of thing orchestrated by the two of them. Um, and they're going to, like, collaborate. Like, maybe there's going to be, like, an Anthony Fontano skit on the next uh, 50-song Drake album. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, that crossed my mind, actually. This <laughs> might not be for real. But I just like to imagine Drake... In his castle in Toronto, <laughs> powerlifting in a rage while watching Anthony Fantano videos on YouTube. I, I That's the image I have. That's my workout regimen. Don't get it <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> He's just pumping iron and like, what the fuck? I'm going to fucking kill this guy. Why does he sound like a metalhead in this scenario? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm just imagining him lifting like 300 pounds or something. Because uh, Drake's pretty big now. Seems yeah. like he can he can lift a lot. That being said, I think Drake's like kind of a guy who just does bicep curls. You know the whole curls for girls thing. Like he he's the guy who skips leg day. Is that a bodybuilding terminology? The curls for girls is that like a diss in the bodybuilding community? It really is. And you know I didn't talk directly to the guys in the arm about that, but it did come up in our interview. Yeah, there's a whole thing that you hear in gym culture where. You know, bicep curls, like the one that, like, you just do that, um, where you get, like, the dumbbells and you lift it up. Like, that's not really good. That's, like, all show muscle. That's not, like, actual muscle. So, hence the phrase, curls for girls. By the way, not (laughs) to go too deep into the gym culture conversation, but did you see that photo going around of the lead singer of Imagine Dragons? Yeah, he looks like Danny Elfman these days. Yeah, he's like Thor. This guy (laughs) is, like, ripped. And, uh, you know, he must have to get ripped because people always make fun of Imagine Dragons. And he's like, you're going to do that to my face? Look at me. I'll, like, destroy (laughs) you with my thigh muscles. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah, he he, straight up, man. Like, I can't... You know what? Like, uh, having an Imagine Dragons feature is definitely the sort of thing the armed would do. (laughs) Oh, man. Although it would be better if it were the other way around and the mm-hmm. armed were on an Imagine Dragons record because that would just blow up the armed. You, 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 the armed could make it to the Super Bowl if they were on an Imagine <laughs> Dragons song. So, yeah. you know, let's make that, let's will that into existence we are, uh, by we are, talking about it. We are shipping a, a Drake Anthony Fontano skit and also an Imagine <laughs> Dragons, the armed. Uh, yeah, we, why, why would we, why would we waste our time trying to rename our mailbag? This is the sort of magic we're dedicating ourselves to, to IndieCast. Well, I was thinking we should try to start a feud with Fantano. That would help our show tremendously. Maybe <laughs> I can, cause I mean, I don't know him really, but I, we've DM'd. I think we're friendly. I could be like, Hey, can you just make up a feud with us so we can get to like 10,000 followers on Twitter? <laughs> I mean, that would be mind blowing for our show. We'll get the interns on that. Hopefully we can make that happen. Uh, Let's get to our list of topics this week. We're going to start by talking about the new album by Philadelphia's own Alex G. It's called God Save the Animals. And this is somehow his 10th record. Is Is that for real? So I have been doing an Alex G deep dive uh, over the past couple of weeks. I have a Alex G albums ranked list that should be publishing either today or on Monday on uprocks.com. And yeah, like I, this guy has 10 albums that you can access on Bandcamp. Some of them haven't, some of them are available on Bandcamp, but not Spotify. Some are on Apple Music. Uh, then there are the singles that 
you can't really access. So this guy has a lot of music. And just to get just to give you a sense of like how long this guy's been around, um, I think for the most part, people really started paying attention to him on a national level with in 2014 with DSU. Um, and at that point, just to get into some real remember some guys, like here are the people that critics who were just catching up with Alex G compared him to. You know, you have like Mac DeMarco or Ariel Pink. And there's this third guy. I want to see if you can remember him. He had two albums. We, you reviewed one of them at Pitchfork. <laughs> I reviewed the other one. This is like real remember some guys type shit. Can you, similar sort of aesthetic. Can you remember who this guy is? Oh my God. Jackson Scott. Do you I remember do... Jackson Scott? <laughs> no, I, I reviewed a Jackson Scott record. You reviewed a you reviewed the good Jackson Scott album. I reviewed the second <laughs> one, which was way way worse. But I, yeah. I have no idea. You could read that review to me, <laughs> and I would not know I wrote it. Like you could have just quoted that review to me, and I'd be like, "Oh wow, that sounds like a pretty great review." I wonder who wrote that. Like you wrote that like ten years ago. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, he's not even thirty years old yet. He's twenty nine. So that he got started. Shocked me, yeah. He has this long career. He is like a wily veteran at this point, but he's still a really young guy. You mentioned that 2014 record. I also feel like him playing on Frank Ocean's Blonde really put him on the map. Obviously, he was enough on the map for Frank Ocean to know who he was, but I feel like he got a lot of notoriety for that, and that obviously is one of the great acclaimed albums of like modern times. So that was a huge step up for him. And it spoke to, I think how influential he has been in the world of, I guess, internet indie, if we want to call it that, or Bandcamp indie. Um, and he's an interesting person because there's something about him that on one hand feels very traditional. You know, he does slot in a way as a singer songwriter in the mold of someone like Elliot Smith, who he has been, compared with who we all know who that is Jackson Scott we might have forgotten that but we remember Elliot Smith and there is something similar in the way that Alex G sings when he's in his like normal voice although he has like a lot of other voice manipulations on his records as well as like his melodic sense on the guitar I think is similar to Elliot Smith so he has that aspect to what he does but on the other hand he is very much a creature of the internet in that you have all this other stuff that is melding with that kind of traditional type of songwriting. It's very modernist the way he combines that kind of music with pop influences, with R&B influences, with like really kind of noisy electronic type influences. And I think it's a really fascinating type of thing. I'm curious, like you said you just did this list of all of his albums. How did you feel about him before this latest album? Because I know for me, you know, I've interviewed him at least once. I, I interviewed him for the Celebration Rock podcast, R.I.P. <laughs> uh, and my impression of him was that you know he seems like a nice guy. He didn't seem terribly introspective. He seemed a little bit guarded. And you know you have to be careful making judgments about that because sometimes artists just aren't introspective or open with the media. They might be in their creative life in the studio. I know he's talked about being something of a control freak in the studio. So he obviously thinks about his music a lot, but he wasn't really articulating it. There's something very opaque about the nature of his songs where 
it's even hard to know what he's singing a lot of the time because of all the voice manipulations. I think I had an impression of him until recently as this guy who makes pretty music and music I like, but it seems a little empty. Like it's hard for me to access it beyond the surface. Was that your experience as well? Or like, where have you, what's your journey with Alex G been like? So like a lot of the, you know, indie music that really excited me in the early 2010s, I heard about Alex G from uh, like, I guess, non-traditional critical sources like Tumblr, Twitter, uh, Bandcamp comment section. He was kind of emo adjacent at that time, being from Philly and having, you know, I believe DSU was reissued on Rump for Cover and he was kind of hanging around the Orchid Tapes crew. And these people, I mean, I can call them kids, you know, they were mostly high school, early 20s, college. They would compare this guy to Elliot Smith, like, and... You know, Alex G has said recently he was listening to Al- nothing but Elliot Smith between 15 and 19, which is when he first started making his records. And with that comparison in mind, I was like always underwhelmed by what I heard because when I think about like Elliot Smith, at least my experience with him, it's like these very straightforward, devastating, emotionally raw lyrics and right. um, very upfront, whereas. Alex G kind of had more of a, like you were saying, it, it almost, it reminded me more of like the Ween song that sounds the most like Elliot Smith, which is Baby Bitch. Um, right. <laughs> and I saw you make that comparison in the outline and it never occurred to me, but that is, a, I think that's a spot on comparison. And I actually did some Google searching Alex G and Ween. And I think in the fan base anyway, there is like a Ween contingent and they're both from Pennsylvania. So there's that connection as well but there is something too with alex g like you were saying you know comparing him to elliot smith the one area where it gets a little uh muddled is that elliot smith is this you know he's the quintessential autobiographical songwriter you know like you feel like he's pouring his heart and his anguish out in his songs whereas alex g is much more guarded and is you know because he's changing his voice all the time it it, it is almost like he's singing in the guise of different characters in his songs, which I think is pretty interesting, but it is also like a little distancing at times uh, with his songs. But that that's another thing that's like very similar to Ween, you know, like where they're <laughs> always taking different forms and different genres and you can't really pin them down. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that's kind of created a barrier for me with him because, uh, you know, in a lot of ways it is interesting for him to embody these characters and he does embody characters on songs. Like, you know, I know that like County from Rocket, it's about like a guy, a couple guy, like guys in jail, some gamblers like um, on Sugar House. And it also um, it makes him an interesting uh, person to be like one of the quintessential artists of his time. Because when you look at other people who have taken a similar trajectory from band camp to being signed to a bigger indie um uh, you know, such as Japanese Breakfast or Phoebe Bridgers or Mitski or Car Seat Headrest for that matter, their actual personality, like them as human beings, is such a major part of uh, fanhood. And Alex G is, for one thing, like a notoriously hard interview. Like I've heard from multiple sources that this guy's not going to say anything that's really quotable and you know what? that was my experience too and and we were on a podcast so that made it even harder (laughs) to do which yeah and again like a lot of artists are like that i think he he struck me as guarded 
you know, that he didn't really want to talk too much about what he does or his process, which I get. Although when you're interviewing someone like that, it is a, it can be a little bit of a struggle. (laughs) Yeah. And so, um, up until like, I liked beach music more than most people, which is really odd because I think that was seen as like somewhat of a disappointment. That was his domino debut in 2015. But after that point, I really don't think we can underestimate how much that Frank Ocean connection helped this guy out. And I think he was actually on Endless. Like, yeah. He, um, I think he, I, he was on Blonde, too, though. He was? was he on, okay. I, I thought he was on Blonde. Yeah, I, I, yeah, as I was reading about that. That was okay. around the time that I interviewed him, too. I guess uh, we would have been talking about Rocket at that yeah. time. His 2017 record. Yeah, you know, and I like Rocket. I like beach music. I have to say that for me... House of Sugar, which was the record he put out in 2020, was the one where it really started to connect with me. And I think I finally got what he was doing, that instead of trying to figure out his songs, that you really do have to connect with them as a mood and as a sound. Like, the the sound is the point. The medium is the message with Alex G. And it's about combining these different elements of, again a more traditional type of singer songwriter combined with these more modernist elements of like internet music culture. It really creates this specific kind of melancholy, I think on his records that is, even if it's not specific to something, it's not specific to like a confessional type song. It still does. I think have more of an emotional resonance. I think House of Sugar was the record where I felt like, okay, this is more than just like pretty songs. Like this is moving me in a particular kind of way. And that leads up to God Save the Animals, the new record. And I remember DMing with you this week and I was like, I think this is like actually a great record. And I put a question (laughs) mark on there because I think that speaks a little bit to my ambivalence about Alex G, someone who I've enjoyed, but I didn't ever fully get on board with. This is the record, though, I think that he's been building up to. I think this is the record where you take his aesthetic, which is very vibey, and you are combining it with like a genuine emotional undertow that does linger after you, you know, after the record is over. You know, you want to listen to it again and plug back into it. And again, it's like kind of melancholy of just combining like the old world and the new world. The juxtaposition there, it just creates like a, a feeling for me when I listen to his records. It just registers more for me on the last two. And I think this latest record, it really comes through. I think he's been honing this for a while and maybe he's perfected it with this record. Yeah. So, you know, my experience with his Domino uh, era albums have been, it sounded like pretty similar to yours in that like these were... Uh, I really enjoyed them when I first heard them, and uh, from that point forward, I sort of lost sight of them. You know, they'd be, if I was driving in the car with my wife, and I'm like, okay, I want to put on something indie, but it's something that, like that won't rock the boat. Hey, Alex G. It would be either that or, like, Beach House. Uh, that was kind of the function of Alex G. records for me, and that I liked them, but I'd never really developed much of an emotional connection to them, and I do realize that... Part of that is probably like a generational thing because, you know, by 2009, uh, artists like Grizzly Bear or Beach House, which, you know, themselves aren't particularly emotionally demonstrative bands, like those are ones that are just tied up in my memories of coming of age as like an indie consuming person. 
Um, with this new record, though, um, I don't know if it's going to, you know, it, it, to me, it's not something I'm thinking, oh, album of the year right here. But I do think it is the best Alex G album, or if not the best one, the one that really is a culmination of everything he'd been trying to do up to this point. That seems to be the general consensus. It has a wildly high score on Metacritic right now. Um, and the the issue I kind of had with his past couple of records um, were that they they had that microcastle type sequencing where it would start out with the singles, kind of go into this abstract middle part, and then loop back around to a more accessible side B, which to me is interesting, but it feels a bit distracting. Like I was always hoping for him to kind of consolidate those strengths and not, you know, make me have to choose between the quote experimental ones and the songwriting ones. And every single song on this record to me is engaging in its own way. Like there aren't as many, I don't want to use the word throwaways or even filler for that matter, but I could envision every one of these songs being a single for lack of a better term. Um, and it's the most engaging, like front to back listen that I've had with an Alex G record. And I think also that he's tipping a bit more towards having something to really say in these songs. Like the, the, the curious thing about like, if you listen to his first couple albums, like race or, um, winner, for example, winner's the one that you can't find on streaming. His vocals are very upfront on those albums. And even though like he's, you know, writing lyrics like a 17 year old, it's kind of strange to hear him front a band as traditionally as that. And now he, I don't want to say he sounds like an old soul cause this guy is, he's actually 29 fucking years old, but there seems to be more of a spirituality or a wisdom or like at the very least a desire to be read more literally than he has in the past. But of course in his interviews, he says, Oh, you know, don't, you can't take this stuff at face value. I'm not necessarily saying what I mean, but I think he's canny of enough as a songwriter to make it clear that like you should be paying attention like that. You might actually get a sense of like how Alex Giannascoli thinks about the world from here, which, you know, is kind of what I've been waiting for um, since getting into this guy in 2012. Yeah. And I'll be curious to see, what his thirties look like, because again, he's, he's had a long career already. He has a, a big body of work and you know, this album, you could call it the mature Alex G record. <laughs> Although, and again, this is, you know, probably because of my own age, but he still seems like a kid to me. There's something boyish about him, about how he's always presented himself. I mean, Alex G, it sounds like a kid in your sixth grade class or something. <laughs> I mean, just the way he, he refers to himself. So, you know, like the thirty-five-year-old Alex G. Like, what is that record going to sound like? The like the older guy Alex G. I'm very curious to see how that evolves. But I think with this record, it seems like he's transitioning into that. You know, I I don't know if I could have bought that a few years ago. But like with the last two records, I'm like, okay, I can see him moving, like you say, to like a more emotionally mature place. That'll be interesting to see, like how that evolves uh, as he enters his old man thirties. Yeah, and the thing and the thing I like about him moving into this more um, straightforward sort of expressive songwriting is that he's not doing so in like oh I got to make like a raw singer songwriter type album like there's right. hyper pop there's new metal on this it's still quite modernist exactly and I think that's one of the most fascinating things about him is that 
He can be that singer-songwriter, but he's not relying on the familiar singer-songwriter tropes. You know, and I think that's where he threads the needle as well as anybody. And you can see how he's been influential in that regard. Uh, you know, cause what he's do- influential. Because <laughs> what he's doing now, it feels like a little more typical in the indie realm, but like he's the master of it. You know, and I think for his own records, like I think he's doing that better on these last two records than he's done in his entire career. So definitely excited about where he's headed. This is a great record. Definitely yeah, check it out. With him and always, I almost said it always, with him and always coming back uh, after a couple of years, it's really exciting to hear the masters of a sound that has probably inspired 85% of the music uh, in my inbox that I ignore. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a great thing. And it also just shows like how weak... <laughs> A lot yeah. of the imitators are. It's like, oh man, You're, like they're just coming back to ruin so many records, you know? Like, because you hear what Alex G does on this record, we'll talk about always in a few weeks, and it's like, wow, okay, yeah, the imitators really can't measure up. Um, let's get to our next topic here. I want to talk to you about a show I saw last night, Ian. I went to see Pavement at, at uh, St. Paul's Palace Theater, packed show. Lots of men in flannel shirts. <laughs> Lots of horn-rimmed glasses and beards. Um, I saw a guy in a fish shirt. That was the first thing I saw when I walked in, which I thought was amazing. Because Pavement, on many songs now, plays with two drummers. So I think we can officially call them a jam band. Uh, that was amazing to see. But no, this was, a, this was such a fun show. This, show, this tour... I don't know if you've been following this because I know you're a pavement agnostic and I want to touch on that briefly here in a minute, but this tour has been getting great reviews because you go see them on stage. They're very engaged. They seem like a band that hasn't taken 12 years off, you know, since their last tour, they're playing songs from throughout the catalog. They're mixing up the set list every night, like in pretty radical ways, like their set lists are virtually, you know, unalike every night and it's such a great energy and it makes me think about the 2010 tour which i also saw and the show i saw i thought was fantastic but i feel like that tour had kind of a weird reputation because the highest profile shows they did on that tour were at these big festivals and there was a show in particular at the pitchfork festival which was not well received and i feel like that gave that tour kind of a bad reputation even though i think once they started playing theaters they straightened out and it was really fun and the show i saw it really contradicts the image of pavement as this like slacker band that doesn't care because they were powerful you know and that was true last night too when i saw them this is a powerful band with great songs and there's a looseness to it but it's not slack it is i mean they are loose in a tight kind of way um and it made me wish, like, man, I hope they can keep this going on a semi-regular basis. Because it's so fun to see them. And again, I love the jam band signifiers coming in, seeing the Fish crowd come in. Fish covered pavement in the 90s. They played Gold Sounds. You can look that up online. <laughs> Pretty good cover. Um have you ever seen Pavement? I know because again, I know that you are you have like a resentment of this band. 
Am I yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, if not a resentment of the band, a resentment towards, like, the music they influenced. I mean, and maybe this ties back into, like, our Alex G conversation where uh, it's a format that is really e- – it. I, I talk about this in the Alex G article, how, like, the key to influence in indie rock is to – you know, make people think simultaneously, oh, I can do that. And also, fuck, how'd they do that? And I think Pavement is a kind of band that is quite easy to emulate, but like hard to pull off the songwriting. And I think just the, uh, the amount of like just really awful music they influence is kind of colored, um, you know, kind of colored my view of Pavement. Also for the fact that like Pavement is seen as this like thing to aspire to. And most of the bands that I like are super try hard. Um, but as far as like me seeing them live, I think I saw them live when I was like 14 or 15. Like one of the first concerts I ever went to, my brother took me, uh, he bought, it was the Wowie Zowie tour. Um, he got like the pavement is rad t-shirt and got into a fight with his girlfriend. I don't remember much else about it. Um, and I saw them, I think at Coachella, in 2010 maybe i think or no i definitely saw him at pitchfork festival in 2010 and yeah you were right it was like pretty underwhelming it reminds me in a way of what it was like to see at the drive-in reform for coachella and just straight up cashing checks no one was excited but when they came back a few years later it was like oh fuck yeah this is like at the drive-in fully locked in i think that it probably took payment a little while to like get adjusted to the idea of like playing together and like wanting to do this rather than making it, um, you know, making a financial decision. And of course I'm going to be interested to see how this plays out when Sunday real estate comes back. Um, but it doesn't surprise me that, um, they have such an overlap with jam band, uh, you know, because Steve Malkmus has kind of been like a jam band guy in his solo career, right? Well, yeah, I, there's a lot of guitar solos uh, with Steve Malkmus and the Jicks. And, uh, you know, there is like the indie jam community out there, the people, I guess I would be part of this community who are <laughs> into the jam band thing. And they also like indie rock. And Steve Malkmus, while he has never like endorsed really the Grateful Dead or, or Fish, he does have a similar aesthetic that attracts people to tape his shows. Like I remember... There's this compilation online where it's called Jicks Picks, and it's modeled after Dicks Picks, the Grateful Dead live music series, and it's just a compilation of like standout performances from various tours that the Jicks did, and it's like over like a twenty year period. I mean, it's a very comprehensive compilation. So there's definitely those people out there that uh, got into Malkmus. I think after Pavement broke up, and then there was sort of like a retrospective thing with Pavement with that community that was contextualizing them that way. I think even Malcolmus has joked about being a jam band on stage, like with pavement on this tour. I, I don't think that they're like literally embracing it, but if the dude in the fish shirt shows up at their shows, I'm sure they'll, they're happy to take that person's money. So, <laughs> you know, it's a great thing, but yeah, this is a, this is a great tour. And, you know, I'm actually going to see another reunion tour this weekend. I'm going to go see the gaslight anthem here and they're playing a much bigger venue by the way just speaks to how big the gaslight anthem are i'm excited (laughs) to see that show the last time i saw the gaslight anthem was on the 59th sound tour and it was one of the loudest shows (laughs) i've ever been to uh so that that'll be fun 
Speaking of internet beef, yeah, I mean, me and Brian Fallon, like, we, we hashed things out. But, yeah, I, I, I reviewed uh, their final album, Get Hurt, in 2014, and I was not kind to it. <laughs> yeah, Brian's a nice guy, though. Yeah, okay. Brian's a cool dude. We, I, I fuck with Brian Fallon. Yeah, he, 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 even if you don't like Get Hurt, you can have no problems with Brian Fallon, the person. Very the 50, nice guy. The 59 sound fucking rules. Yeah, exactly. I, look, I, I like the whole catalog. I wrote a a weird review of handwritten for for Grantland where I was <laughs> negative about it, and I really like that record now. I think I thought it was like too over the top when it came out, and now I love that because I think I end up loving these ret- records retrospectively because I wish they were being made now. I wish there was a band that was on a major label like the Gaslight Anthem that just made like huge sounding arena rock records like you don't really get a whole lot of that now so i think i took it for granted even 10 years ago uh which there weren't a whole lot of records like that even then um we have to get to our next topic here we have two more topics here we're going to kind of fly through them a little bit but we cannot let this episode go by without talking about the news of a new smashing pumpkins record which dropped this week (sighs) And I'm just going to read this thing from Pitchfork because there's a lot to unpack here. And we're going to have to do it fairly quickly, but this is from Pitchfork. The Smashing Pumpkins have announced their new album, Autumn. It's spelled A-T-U-M. Not like Autumn, A-T-U-M, but it's pronounced Autumn. A 33-song rock opera in three acts that's billed as the sequel to Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness and Machina, Machine of God. They had to get Machina in there. I love that they had to get that in there just for Billy Corgan's ego. Like, no, that record is as significant as Melancholy. We're going to put that in the trilogy here. The new song Beguiled is the first taste from the new album. And it says each act of autumn will be, will be released every 11 weeks with act one leading off on November 15th. Act two will follow on January 31st and act three on April 21st. And then there'll be a special edition box set featuring all 33 songs plus 10 more songs <laughs> which I don't know if that changes the story of the rock <laughs> opera by the way is this like a uh, like a like a prequel or a sequel to the sequel we'll have to find out that comes out April 21st now this is the part <laughs> the every 11 weeks thing okay you got that part of the album rollout now you have this other part of the album rollout where Billy Corgan he's announced a new podcast called 33 with William Patrick Corgan. Each new episode will feature an unreleased Smashing Pumpkins song. So there's going to be 33 episodes, at least, each one with a new song. So a very slow rollout here for the album. I want to get your take on this. This is, this is like a quick tangent here, but like, have you listened or heard or, or seen uh, the new Bill Maher podcast? I mean, yep. I'm like debating whether I should be insulted for making, for like implying that I would eat, like watch a Bill Maher podcast. I, I haven't even heard of this though. Well, okay. So this comes up in my YouTube algorithm every now and then. He has a podcast called Club Random. And it's basically, he's in his basement, which is outfitted to look like a bar. And it's him and a celebrity guest. Aaron Rodgers was on recently. Oh, God, God damn. Oh, there you go. God damn, can you just like torture me more here, please, Aaron <laughs> Rodgers? Uh, 
And it's so clear from this show that Bill Maher wants to be Joe Rogan because he's like smoking weed throughout the pod. And the thing about the show is that he gets so fucked up so quickly that 20 minutes in, he's like incoherent. You know, it's like crazy. It's like, dude, pace yourself here. You're like, you're going to be falling down before you get to like the Squarespace ad read. (laughs) Um, But anyway, it just made me think about Billy Corgan having a podcast. Billy Corgan was a guest on Joe Rogan show. It's like every guy over the age of 50 wants to be like Joe Rogan now. And now Billy Corgan has this podcast that he's going to be rolling out his album one song at a time on this podcast. And do you know anything about the, is it like a wrestling show? Is there like a wrestling element to it or something? Um I I read uh, a Stereo Gum article about this rollout and one of the commenters apparently had listened to the podcast and described it as two wrestling announcers stroking this madman's ego as he rambles for a solid hour plus commercials. Oh my god. Yeah. It's like I mean, what like, we are two of the only music critics at this point who are engaged with like a new Smashing Pumpkins record. Like we, we we'll talk about this on our show. We care about it, but I'm already exhausted by this yeah. album rollout. The every 11 weeks thing. I, 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 it's like melancholy. You drop 28 songs on one day. Why can't you just put out a record? I hate these like breaking up the album type rollouts. It's like my least favorite way to release a record and then the podcast thing it's like give me a break i'm not gonna listen to billy corgan's podcast i just cannot I, there's there's only so many hours in the day i just cannot do that yeah i'm like already negotiating hazard pay with pitchfork when they inevitably <laughs> make me listen to this fucking thing i mean i reviewed seer i i guess that's how it's pronounced it's like that was the one that came out at the end of 2020 that was 20 songs long uh, and I say never again. In the same way, I have to like preemptively say no. I'm not going to review this fucking Weezer EP. Like maybe I just need to. Maybe I. Maybe I just need to like hold that line with Smashing Pumpkins. Um, I mean, I, what what I want out of this, like you know, despite the fact that we're already exhausted, just talking about the rollout. I don't want to listen to the album. I don't want to listen to the podcast. What I really want is a get back style documentary about the making of this record. Cause oh, yeah. I would just love to watch like footage of James Eha, uh, you know, sitting around the studio waiting for like Billy Corgan to like overdub all of James like guitar <laughs> solos or whatever. And just because like with get back, you can, it's like worth, worth like getting through all the mundanity because you know that some genius is going to arise out of this. But, what it must be like for Jimmy Chamberlain or Jeff Schroeder, I think the other guy's name is, to like wow. Have to, Wait, yeah. you know the hired gun bass player's name in Smashing I think he's Pumpkins? The other guitar, I, it's Schroeder. Something's in there. Um, he's got to be playing bass though. Or do they have like a female bass player to replace Darcy? Because that's uh, something he did. He brought in <laughs> Melissa off to Moore. Yeah, you and know, off to Moore. I think Paz, uh, from, who plays in the Pixies, like, was in Zwan. By the way, like, of all the fucking effort this guy is doing to make what is essentially, like, royalty-free Smashing Pumpkins songs, like, he can't sign the fucking paperwork to put Zwan on Spotify. Like, what, that is what the people, Billy, you want, you, you want the people to love you again? Put Zwan on streaming, man. Like, that's all it could take. 
he there must be he either doesn't like the record or there's some weird record label fight going on. I it, I don't know. We need someone to dig into the Zwan <laughs> mess. Um, well, it turns way, twenty. It turns twenty next year, so maybe there's like going to be a a ten LP reissue of it that he's just priming the pump for. Yeah. Well. That's something that I, that's another thing that only we will care about on this show. But we will dutifully cover the Zwan 20th anniversary. You have no have no doubt about that. Uh, we haven't even talked about the song yet. The song that dropped. Did you listen to the song Beguiled? Yeah, uh, it, it certainly exists. So I don't know. Like when I heard the song, the riff, it just made me think of "She Drives Me Crazy" by Fine Young Cannibals. Am I crazy? Am I crazy for thinking no. this? Like I heard because the, it, nah, 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 it kind of sounds like that. Yeah, it just. And sounds... I just, kept, I kept thinking of Fine Young Cannibals listening to this song. It totally took me out of the experience. I, yeah. I could not focus after that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it it does. Like there are some songs on the past record that remind me of Thunder Kiss '65. So really, what? <laughs> What Smashing Pumpkins are doing is like they're just littering these 50-song albums with riffs that I remember from listening to the radio in the school bus or something like that. Which, you know what, like, if that's what Billy Corgan is going to do, fine. But I just can't understand. The worst part about this all is that on the last album, Billy Corgan taught himself how to use logic. on the Like, he self-taught, like, how to basically produce his own records. And so... Uh, the nut, I guess similar to Alex G when I listen, like the old Alex G albums, when I listen to new smashing pumpkins albums, I think like, Oh yeah, I know how to get that sound on my computer. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I don't know, man. I just like the idea of him recycling like old songs. I I want him to do a smashing pumpkin songs, uh, song that sounds like wild, wild west or built or or beds are burning. You know, let's like all all bald guy riffs. Well, do you know, like, Wild Wild West, I'm not talking about the Will Smith one, like, the, oh, no. uh, the Escape Club. Escape Club. You better fucking believe I know Wild Wild West. <laughs> it's like, Living in the Wild Wild West. We are strictly um, an Escape Club podcast now. That's that's, that, right. that's what we're doing for the people. Um, So we have time, I think, here to talk briefly about the other big alt-rock news of the week, which was Mariah Carey. Um. Not normally a topic on this show, but she has found a way into the IndieCast universe because, and this has been known for a while, that in the mid-90s she recorded a grunge album, and uh, it was called uh, Someone's Ugly Daughter. And was it under the name Chick? Or was it just, okay. And uh, there have been songs from this album that have floated around for a while. Like, you can go on YouTube... And I think like the song I heard was called Demented, I believe is the yes. name of the song. There's you know, Demented because... and Malibu was the other. Malibu, was that before the whole song? I think Had it was. Been, yeah. Um anyway, this album has always been rumored. I think she talks about it in her uh, 2020 memoir. Um, but now it looks like this album is finally gonna come out. The Mariah Carey Grunge album, which is an incredible phrase, by the way. You know, they talk about <laughs> cellar. They talk, they talk about cellar door being one of the most beautiful phrases in the English language. I think <laughs> Mariah Carey Grunge album is right next to that. Um, it, that's true anyway until you actually hear the music, um, because, like we said, there are some songs that have leaked, 
in the past and I'm, did you get a chance to listen to these songs at all? Yeah, I was surprised that these songs actually exist. Um, and I listened to them. And like, first off, I think we need to let, you know, as, as as someone who's about to put a book about Pearl Jam out into the world, I think it's, you know, I, I think it's worth mentioning. This does not sound like grunge at all. No. Uh, yeah. So these it, are more It's like- kind of like... Uh- how would you describe it? It's not really grunge. It's sort of like alt pop with like a sludgy, angry edge. Like Tracy Meredith Brooks. Bonham. Yeah, Tracy, Tracy Bonham. Bonham. Yes. Yeah, not Meredith Brooks. That's a little more slick. This is more like Tracy Bonham, mother, mother type uh, alt rock. And um, yeah. the, okay, like this, this is some of the like the worst shit I've ever heard. Like <laughs> it, it's, it, I mean, not even so much because like the songwriting is like piss poor. It is, but when you listen to this music, like at the very least, it should sound like a major label in the '90s put it out, and the guitars sound like a garage band plug-in. Like the mix is like extremely off. Uh, the videos look very much 1995 Buzzbin. I'll, I'll give it that, but um, I mean, to think about like Mariah Carey singing these, I don't. It would certainly make them more interesting. It wouldn't make them particularly good. Um, and you know what, like if this music was really meant to be out there in the world, like you were talking about a time when albums could go like platinum for no reason whatsoever. Um, and this stuff was buried. So, I mean, yeah, I wish this was like a Chris Gaines album that came out in 95. Like if there was, uh, like when Mariah Carey was at the height of her, you know, pop career at that point, if she had pulled a Chris Gaines and put out Chick, that would have been interesting. I do wonder because I agree that like the mix sounds like like crap. If this album is released, I assume it'll have a better mix. Like it'll sound a little slicker. I mean, I, I like the idea of Mariah Carey making like a garbage record, like if, yes, like like that kind of record, like where maybe she's singing like in a lower register and it's this kind of industrial pop type thing. Uh, you know, or singing like "Only Happy When It Rains," like a song like that, or "Stupid Girl." That would actually be kind of cool, like because she's obviously a great singer, and you put her in that context, it, it could be good. But you're right; this just sounds like, um, you know, like a no-brainer parody of yeah. <laughs> of that kind of music. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I I would be curious to hear her talk about this. I wonder, like, to what degree this was like a genuine direction for her. Like if this was something she felt really connected to, or if this was like something she did for fun in the studio as a goof, you know, like I'm not really clear on, on that whole thing. This or, whether, seems like a, or whether it's like, you know, the version of nowadays, like every pop star saying, Oh, I'm going to make a pop punk record. You know what I mean? Right. Right. I mean, it does go to show that something like this is probably better as an idea than as a reality. Like, to, to, to say, like, oh, Mariah Carey made a grunge record, and now you can just imagine what it sounds like, that's probably where this should stay. You know, where it's like a, it's a thought exercise for people that you could talk about at a bar or, or at parties, and it's a fun thing. When it actually exists, it probably becomes, like, a lot less appealing. Yeah. Also, I, I just wonder if, like, you have a vocalist like Mariah Carey. Can you even be grunge at that point? You know. Well, you know, Chris Cornell is like the Mariah Carey of grunge. You know, he had an incredible 
set of pipes. He could hit the high notes. So, and then, and then Chris Cornell, you know, he made his Timbaland record. Yes. Oh. So, you know, we're just crossing the streams right here. There it is. We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? So, you know, we like to give a peek behind the critical curtain here every now and again, and I'll just admit that there are certain bands uh, that I name drop in reviews as reference points, despite the fact that I've never actually listened to their music. Um, and because I cover, uh, you know, a decent amount of like what you might call post metal or sludge metal or what have you, uh, I've done that with the band Isis, like, you know, it's an unfortunate name. Uh, they existed from 1997 to 2010, a Boston band, which is largely credited with, um, taking metal into more kind of atmospheric, uh, and ambient sounds. And up until last week, I had never actually sat down and listened to one of their records. I just figured, oh, this is probably like Russian circles or something like that. Sounds good. But like, I, I, I get the idea. And then I read a, I read a review about their 20th anniversary of Oceanic, which is generally considered to be their best record. It's the one that has five stars on All Music Guide. Um, and it described that their most well-known song, Wait, is 10 minutes, and it has no vocals except for this female uh, artist who was in an emo band in Boston, which, like, wait a minute, that's not what I expected. And, yeah... Having listened to Oceanic now, I'm thinking, like, where the fuck has this been all my life? Um, I mean, it's been right out there in the open. But it's just a good reminder that, like, you know, old music still exists. Um, and that, yeah, Oceanic, if you like any of the bands that, you know, put out records like Holy Fawn or Russian Circles or Caspian, for that matter... Uh, if you want to figure out like where, and also like Deftones are highly inspired by this. If you want to like figure out like where they get these ideas from, Oceanic is, uh, the album to do it and start with weight. Like I guarantee if you like most of the stuff I talk about on here, this song will do it for you. Didn't Chino Moreno make a record with a guy from ISIS? I remember that record, Palms. That Palms, I reviewed that album. Yeah, that's a good record. And it's definitely, and I think there's a guy from Ocean uh, from ISIS, the band, not ISIS, the other people. <laughs> I think he collaborated with someone from ISIS on that record. I'll, I, I could be wrong, though. But if he yeah. didn't collaborate with ISIS, he's definitely inspired by ISIS, the band. Uh, but yeah, Oceanic, That's, a, that's I, I will second that recommendation. I like that album a lot. I, when you were talking, it made me think about that band Cloakroom. I feel Cloakroom Ooh. probably listens to ISIS, the band. I, I definitely hear some shades of them uh, in that band. Uh I want to talk about a band from New York called Elkhorn, and I'm just going to read the Bandcamp description of this group because it's, they put it about as well as I could. It's a guitar duo featuring Jesse Shepard on 12-string acoustic and Dave Gardner on electric, interweaving the extended folk tradition with psychedelic improvisation, moving freely from pre-rock to post-rock and beyond. And that's a great way to put it. I, I feel like on a lot of the records that I've heard by Elkhorn that it does fall in that pre-rock tradition, I guess like a John Fahey uh, instrumental Americana type type sound. And I like a lot of records like that, although, you know, and I've talked about this before with instrumental guitar music, sometimes it can be a little 
in one ear and out the other. It sounds more like playing than full-fledged songs. Their new record, though, it's called Distances, and this is my favorite thing that I've that I've heard from this group. And I think the difference this time with this record is that they use two drummers on this album. And I brought up two drummers earlier with Pavement and that being a signifier of jam bands. I would say in the, in the case of Elkhorn, it just makes them sound more like a band and it makes the songs, which again are still instrumental, just makes them sound more epic. And I would say, too, that this record probably leans a little bit more on the electric side than other Elkhorn records that I've heard, which, again, I think kind of gives that feel of, uh, it's not quite rock and roll, it's not quite post-rock, and it's not quite pre-rock. It's somewhere in between those different areas. But this is a record I've been listening to a lot this week. I have to give a shout-out to Tyler Wilcox, a writer at Aquarium Drunkard, the great uh, music blog. He was talking up this record this week and he inspired me to give it a shot. And along with the Alex G record, this was my most listened to album of the week. So definitely check it out. Go on Bandcamp, look up Elkhorn, E L K H O R N. The album is called Distances. I think you'll really like it. Between the two drummers uh, and uh, talking about ISIS, I think we're like trying to conjure a Kylisa uh, reunion. Because, man, that. <laughs> That shout to that band. That band fucking ruled. Yeah, that's another early two thousand tens favorite. I'm gonna go listen to Jackson Scott after this. I <laughs> I want to. That I mean, I gave it a positive review. I'm sure I was right back then. That's that's probably a good record. Um, thank you all for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.